This is a Handshake Agency podcast. Welcome to the second episode of Rewind's trip back 20 years to Melbourne, 2001, and the release of something for Kate's epic third album, Echolalia. If you haven't checked out the first part yet, we recommend you do so first. That way this law make a lot more sense. Ask me how I am, ask me how I've been And then stand and watch and hope and wait and with any luck Okay, so Somnificator formed pretty much out of high school and made an immediate impact to the point that they'd signed a Sony imprint murmur on the strength of their first demo tape and things had just progressed steadily from there. Their sound is evolving slowly but surely, with texture and nuance replacing volume, although they can and do still go pretty hard when they feel so inclined. The first Somnificator album, Elsewhere for 8 Minutes, introduced them to the wider world in 1997, after which the classic, in inverted commas, lineup came together, and their first recorded foray was Somnificator's second album, Beautiful Sharks, which had cracked the top 10 on the Aria album chart. When we last left our three band members, Paul Dempsey, Clint Heinemann and Stephanie Ashworth, they were bunkered down in their Melbourne rehearsal room, writing towards album number three, but nothing was happening. Plenty of ideas were arriving, but nothing they liked enough, and this went on for months in the middle of 2000, punctuated only by Paul's solo Lack of Rhythm national tour in May-June, but no matter how hard they worked, the songs, especially the words, just weren't arriving like they usually did. Before we delve too deep into this rough patch and its eventual resolution, we should have a quick look at the Something for Kate creative process. Obviously Paul is the band's primary songwriter, but as he explains, it's far more collaborative than that in practice. I'm kind of the only writer in the band. Um, You know, Clint and Steph don't exactly show up at rehearsal and say, hey, I've got this thing, you know, it's, it's more... I, I come to rehearsal, I show them a bunch of stuff that I've got and then they pretty much cherry pick and go, that sounds good, let's work on that. Even if I kind of say, hey, I've got this other thing I'm really excited about, you know, they might just go, yeah, no, do that other thing. So, yeah, it's it's collaborative in the sense that, you know, I, I come in with a bunch of ideas but then they, you know, they just kind of grab the bits and pieces and start, you know, uh, you know, helping to drive things from there. I've often said that it's it's like being in a band with two record producers because, um, you know, I come up with all the stuff, but then they really uh, pull it to pieces and, and uh, you know, they're, they're not shy about saying, you know, yeah, this bit's good, but that bit, just, you know, get rid of it. Let's just do something, like come up with something else. And they'll sit there and wait while I try and come up with, some alternative part or some other thing, you know. From Stephanie's perspective, the band's creative process subtly changes on a song-to-song basis. Yeah, so every song happens in a different way. Like some songs um, will come from, you know, Paul will have an idea and a guitar part and he'll come to us and go, okay, this is what I've got. And Clint and I will will sort of listen to it and and give our thoughts and then we'll write our parts for it. Um, And then we'll back and forth them. and, and sort of keep drafting and redrafting. Um, but then other songs come from like um, a bass line or a keyboard part. I mean, there's a song on Echolalia that I wrote on a keyboard 
um, which Paul then took my keyboard line and made it a lead guitar line. And that's what you hear in 20 years. It's a song called 20 Years on, on the record that, that I wrote on a keyboard. So sometimes, you know, different parts um, end up played by a different instrument from the original idea. Um, and, you know, like some songs come from it, like a drum beat that Clint might have. Um, so it's different with each song. Clint also agrees that the creative process is collaborative, even if the original ideas all emanate from his old schoolmate. The music's always written first, always has been. Um, some songs are written from it's all the music and lyrics written before it even gets to Steph and I. Um, but generally it comes to us in one form and then he comes up with, say, you know, a drum idea and then we'll bash it out and it'll change because he's always like, here's, here's, here's just something I put behind it for the hell of it because um, I needed to record it and get it down and, and track it. Um, so we all get our say in it and I think it's it's the great thing about Paul is that he, it, the way the band works is if, if Steph or I don't like it, he'll change it. If those two like it and I don't like it, they'll change. Yeah, we'll all, we all like to agree and make sure we agree on it. We, you know, it's just hard because you don't like to compromise the song because you know we we all want the best for the song, but we all try and make sure we all love it when we get there. Like even to a point, the words are untouchable. But there's been a couple of times where we've stepped in and like, you know, and and our whole thing is if you want to if you want if you want to you know different words where you write them you sing them and I'm like well I'm not singing it so and no one wants to hear my voice anyway but that was the whole the whole ethos behind how we did it but the um yeah it's a, it's a, it is a really collaborative effort and we always like I think it was during definitely during Echo Valley but we would have a room that we would go to every day and some days I'd just sit there in the corner playing you know back then you couldn't scroll on your phone you'd just sit there and read the paper or do whatever while Paul would sit in the corner noodling. But we treated it like a nine-to-five job. Um, but we'd always all be there all the time because we all wanted to be there. You know, it's not something that was just written in his bedroom and then given to us. We were we were all part of the process all, all the time. So Clint just took us back to the Melbourne rehearsal room pre-Echolalia, the three mates clocking in faithfully like a nine-to-five job every day, waiting for ideas to materialise that just weren't happening. The drummer admits that things were starting to get a little tough. So he went through just a massive writer's block stage. And I think, you know, if you look at the amount of stuff he writes for records lyrically is notebooks, notebooks. Like, there is so much. I'm always like, you can't find something in there to, like, commit to. And I think he labours over the words so hard. But the music was never a hassle. It was more just getting the, the right words. It's always the right words. Before. Like, it's always finding he'll labour over a line for months. And, we, you know, like he, before he commits to it, I think, you know, so much attention is paid to the words. Like the, the melody is compromised for the word. Like there could be a better melody, but if the word doesn't fit, he'll make that, you know what I mean? Like it was, which is part of the, was part of the problem back then. I think he just, um, he just couldn't come up with the right words at the time. And yeah, it got pretty, it was pretty intense for a while. It was definitely a bit, bit worrying given that that was, like I said, that was my, you know, full-time gig. And I think Paul also felt that pressure. I remember a couple of times that came up that it was like, this is, I'm responsible for you and Steph. 
my work. You know, I remember that coming up a couple of times, which I hate ever thinking about your art in that way. But you know, this is what supports us and what what you know is how we make a living. They're going through a real life version of Groundhog Day, sitting there in the same room, staring at the same faces for weeks on end, and nothing's coming. Something's got to give. Paul remembers becoming instinctually aware the proceedings needed to change. They needed to get out of there. It just got to a point eventually after several months of that, um, we literally just walked out of the rehearsal room one day and into a flight centre. Um, and, you know, every flight centre I think is the same. They all have that huge world map wallpaper. And we just kind of stood there and looked at it and just went, okay, there. <laughs> like two days later, I think we were in Thailand. We're going back to Thailand, people, just like the Regurgitator Rewind. Only this time, instead of the back blocks of Bangkok, it's the beautiful coastal island of PP, and instead of cheap recording, we're looking for exotic inspiration. Stephanie remembers that they really did just march into a flight centre with no plans and pick a random destination on the spot. A beautiful random destination. We approached writing like a person would clock into a day job. You know, we would turn up to the rehearsal room early in the morning. Well, morning, I say, but <laughs> 11, 12. And, you know, we'd sit there and stare at each other until, until the ideas came. And sometimes that worked and sometimes it didn't. And I think, you know, after, you know, 18 months of doing that um, and not necessarily getting that major lyrical breakthrough that Paul was used to getting or ne- needed, um, we just kind of felt like that that um, that wasn't working for us. That that schedule of going in there every day it sort of it was a bit um, rigid, and it, you know it just wasn't yielding results for us. So it was just like, well, let's just get out of here. Let's just you know let's just go somewhere and just break this break this sort of um, you know day after day kind of monotony of just you know staring at each other <laughs> let's go else somewhere else and stare at each other we were just you know <laughs> three kids with like you know an album to get finished um who were just needing to get out of here um so we just went down there and i think you know it was that thing where you go uh, and they had a map on the wall they had a big world map you know on the wall and um i think paul or one of us just went uh, like that and it was like oh okay thailand let's go there <laughs> um and so we did we, none of us had been there. We didn't know what, what we were, you know, work, walking into. <laughs> um, it, just, uh, it just ended up being a really good um, kind of, uh, I guess, the, the, the heated term of the day is circuit breaker. Um, yeah, it just ended up being, you know, the right level of getting away from Australia and the expectation and the pressure and, um, but also the right amount of, you know, just... Um, a, a horizon where you could see the sun and the water and it wasn't about um, the, the pressures associated with the city for Paul particularly. Um, it it kind of gave him some freedom, I think, to um, just to think, just to think um, with a fresh perspective. From the label's perspective, John O'Donnell had some obvious financial reservations about the whole Thailand junket, although he could see it was clearly necessary to break the creative impasse. Plus, as the head of murmur, he was starting to hear some rumblings from above. It was, I, I just remember Paul really battling to write lyrics and, and to finish songs. And I, my memory is that they had lots of tunes, 
but not a lot of words. And Paul was doing that thing of starting to try harder to achieve, you know, and write those lyrics, but was finding it more and more frustrating. Um, and so they went to Thailand and Paul was always really good at knowing A, that he had to get away. Um, and they've done that all through their career. They've gone interesting places to make records, um, but they've always also gone to interesting places to write or to deal with writer's block or to just freshen themselves up. Um, I think it was with Beautiful Sharks, Paul went up to Canada. I think it was Toronto. Um, first album was done in New Zealand, was recorded in New Zealand, and it was done on a bare bones budget. But, you know, he did not want to make that record in Melbourne, which would have been a lot easier and a lot um, cheaper. But um, he wanted to get out of his normal environment and be inspired to have it and challenged by different locations. And so um, when he was going through that writer's block, um, he knew he had to get away. And I remember sitting there in my office at the Murmur office going, ah, oh, that's gonna cost a lot of money or a bit of money. Um, and it's, you know, it's not gonna be simple time-wise, but, he was right. It was the right thing to do. He had to free himself up. And the story goes that he was in Thailand for a matter of hours and suddenly Monsters comes and he's cracked the code on, you know, and the juices are flowing. He's cracked the code on writing songs and suddenly they all start pouring out of him. And I think from memory, they're only there for a week or 10 days. Um, so it wasn't like some, you know, um, time in the Bahamas dreaming up your third record. It was a necessary thing that he knew he had to do, um, which we didn't entirely understand, you know, but I knew that he was right and that um, if he felt that strongly about it, it was something that was important to him and he had to do it. And again, this big release came that that made a difference. It was kind of interesting. At the at the time, I was starting to get some pressure from Sony um, on something for Kate. Were they going to deliver? Were you know, who is this band? What is this band? Are they going to deliver commercial goods? That was starting to ramp up because it was album number three, and people were like, and Sony didn't have a great track record of sticking by bands um you know it was it had been well documented and so dennis was getting very impatient and was never a particular fan up until ekalali was made and in the can and then started performing but he was never a big fan wasn't that aware of them and um he was starting to ask some heavy questions that were um, probably more concerning than Paul's writer's block for me anyway. Had, had your, had the Murmur relationship with Sony changed by this stage? Like didn't at 99, I read somewhere that uh, Murmur came back in house at Sony. Um, I think that was happening when this record was being made. I was still in the Murmur office. Okay. Um, I remember that. I think it, 
I think it was all in transition around that time. And it was Peter Carpen, who was the head of A&R at Sony. He had left and I kind of, um, I was offered the job and I knew if I didn't take it as the head of A&R for both Murmur and for Sony, that then some schmuck might come in and kind of try and undermine what we were doing at Murmur and push that aside or push it down. So I kind of went, if I don't come in and kind of step into that bigger role, I think I could lose something. And I don't know if the Murmur bands all understood it, but I knew that that was politically wise, um, even though it wasn't fun. But the band, they were having fun. Paul remembers the time in Thailand as being just what he needed and that the change in scenery did wonders for his dormant creativity. I think it was just not being in that room, firstly. Um, And, you know, it's just, I mean, obviously it's exciting to just pack up and go somewhere else and and somewhere we'd never been before. Uh, Just a real cultural change of atmosphere as well. And um, I think when you're overseas you know, in, in a really different place, in a different culture, with a different language and, you know, everything's different. Your, your senses, your powers of observation, your kind of antenna to the world, everything sort of heightens a little bit. You, you suddenly, you feel more aware and more observant and more sensitive to what's going on around you. And that's a good way for a writer to... I think it just so it was just it was inspiring in that sense just that that just that difference of um you know like like being on another planet um so suddenly I just started to find words again for for the things around me and and then I remember being on this little island where we kind of parked ourselves for a week or so and I just remember floating around in the water um and just staring at you know, just being surrounded by fish and just, you know, it's just perspective, I think. <laughs> you know, just getting a getting a sense of, a healthy sense of perspective um, and, you know, just also a healthy dose of, of, a, of a different reality and suddenly, you know, we, we'd go back to our little hut um, and we'd sit around. We, you know, we brought guitars with us as well, so it wasn't totally a... Um, you know, a holiday, we, we actually did bring guitars. And so we'd sit in this little room and start jamming ideas around. And, and I also remember, you know, I'd, in the afternoons after like walking or swimming or whatever, I'd just kind of let myself sit around with headphones on and just listen to some records. And, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, it just started to flow again, or, or at least all the doubt and all the tension just kind of went away. And famously, Monsters came out pretty quick at some point during this. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I can't remember exactly, like, whether it started in Thailand or, or whether it was shortly after we got home. Um, but, you know, it's definitely the most, I think Monsters is the most, um, you know, literal connection to, to what went on in Thailand. You know, just that, like, hiding away underwater all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I was hiding away underwater, waiting for distance and buying some time. Trying to be 200,000 years younger, 
so I could excuse myself from humankind. Um, it's about just sort of getting that distance from everything and getting that perspective over, you know, everything. Um, so, uh, yeah, but it, it just seems like once we got back after that, things started to roll uh, pretty nicely. I guess we talk about how hard it was when the songs weren't coming. Conversely, is it a good feeling when they start flowing out like that? Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's really, really exciting. And, and, and especially after, you know, a long period of, you know, uh, you know, that kind of uh, feeling stifled. Uh, so, yeah, when it starts to flow again, and it's, it's, all, it's the same when you're writing every record as well. When you've kind of written six songs and you know that you're more than halfway there, um, it, that, when you know you're on the sort of homeward stretch and you can see a complete album, it's no longer just three or four songs. You, you can start to sense that there's a, a, a complete album taking shape. And you also start to know what's missing. You know, when you've got six or seven songs written, you know what else is needed uh, to, to make a sort of complete record. Whereas, you know, when you've only got three in the bag, you know, the, the album could still kind of be anything. So, yeah, I, I remember sort of having seven songs done and then also just then knowing what, what kind of things we needed to, which ideas we needed to pursue to, to make a, a complete record. Stephanie also believes that this time spent in Thailand consolidated the eventual tone and vibe of Echolalia. You know, I was just looking at photos of that trip the other day and I'm, you know, I'm sitting on a, on a hotel room bed with my guitar and I bought this, I remember I bought this little portable amp with me that was like this big and, um, and you know, we were writing songs in, in Thailand. Um, Paul bought an acoustic guitar and, um, you know, I think um, Clint was probably, you know, tapping, tapping. I hear Paul talk a lot over the years about um, it's uh, getting the getting a way in because um, every record has you know um, it, uh, a feel and characters and concepts and sometimes you just need to find your way in um, and I think that's what Thailand was it was a way in to um, to finishing that record and, and establishing what that record was um, particularly lyrically for him. Drummers usually get the wrong end of the stick when it comes to lugging gear and so forth. But as Clint explains, on an overseas trip like this one, all bets are off. We used to take holidays before records, the luxury we used to have. But yeah, we went to Thailand just to have a bit of a break, um, which was kind of, well, it's bizarre when I think about it now. But um, but it helped, you know, like we wrote a couple of songs and we were over there. I didn't take drums or anything and I was basically just there cruising, but we like to do everything together as a band. But Paul took his guitar and mucked around and, there were no drums or anything like that. Like I literally got a free holiday when I think about it. Um, but <laughs> it was all part of the process. It's part of how we write and, you know, how we've always tried to do it. It's changed a lot these days, obviously, because now we've got kids and businesses, et cetera. We don't have the freedom to just take off and do whatever we can. Craig Matheson, these days still a respected writer in the cultural realms, focusing on TV, but back then a fledgling A&R guy with Sony, working closely with something for Kate, reckons that the tough writing patch leading up to Echolalia was as much to do with Paul's exacting standards as anything else. It's just a really exciting time because it was obvious that this was a band that was special and you could see it, you could hear it, you could sense it, and I think they could sense something, which is not an easy thing for a band to realise that maybe greatness is your path because it always comes with a cost. It's never easy. 
and you know there's there's pressure from the outside there's pressure you put on yourself they are perfectionists um they didn't have any sense of how you navigate these things they were doing it for the first time um you know there was all kinds of of things they they wanted to deal with and the bar they set was really high um but you could just tell that there, that if it went right there was going to be something really special and something that would resonate it was you know it was just obvious that paul was a, song, a really rare songwriter and he was in the right circumstances to make something that mattered he was in a really good situation even if it was just you know clint and stephanie that was just a great situation for him and that would have let him flourish and eventually it all came together with a lot of work i mean paul is a very has lots of sides and one of them is that he takes his art incredibly seriously um you know he's a very funny man you know i've i've spent nights sitting in hotel rooms just where he's been there and you know it's just told one joke after another after a gig that's gone well and you know but when he's writing he writes he, he sits in that room he fills those notebooks and if if it's not coming and certainly not then if it wasn't coming he he pushed himself and pushed and pushed um and he wouldn't let himself take anything less than he thought he had to do and you know that wears on an artist and you know the great artists get something out of that it sharpens them it, it's that sort of pressure the pressure makes the diamonds i suppose but you know he was never going to let good enough be what was on that album it had to be more than good enough paul's writing struggles leading into echolalia were enough that it was reported back in the day that he'd briefly considered putting the band aside to go to uni to study science or astrophysics but he doesn't remember things ever getting that drastic i don't think i was gonna like give the band up or anything uh i just didn't know how to move forward i i just I mean, I was just trying, I was trying and trying and racking my brain and playing my guitar and scribbling in my notebooks. And, you know, I was doing the work, but I just wasn't happy with any of it. I didn't want to throw the towel in. I just, I just didn't know how to get through it. Um, you know, so no, there was, yeah, I, I was, I was never going to chuck it in. I just, uh, but, but, but yeah, I was at an, at an impasse and, and I just, you know, that, that feeling starts to creep in that you just don't know whether this record's going to end up taking a year or two years or, you know, I mean, I knew we could keep on being a band and playing shows, but it was like, God, how long is it just, how long is it going to take to, to write these songs or, or, you know, when am I going to write a song that I like? Um, you know, I, I knew I'd get there eventually, but it's still a pretty frustrating uh, position. Late that August, back in Melbourne with the words finally starting to flow, Paul played a series of secret shows at the Corner Hotel under the pseudonym Hawaiian Robot. The something-for-Kate song Hawaiian Robots, eventually surfacing as a B-side on the Monsters single, these shows designed to help massage his new river of ideas into finished songs. They were really tiny. They were at the Corner Hotel, but not in the, you know, the what is now the band venue. They were in the front bar to, like, you know, 50 people. Um, and 
Yeah, I was really just testing things out. I, I was, you know, I'd, I would get, a, I'd play half a song that wasn't finished yet. You know, sometimes I'd just play a verse and a chorus of something that that wasn't finished yet, just to just to actually play it and sing it in front of people, um, and just see how it felt. <laughs> I don't know, um, but I, like I said, it's also doing stuff like that is important to me as well because just playing music live in front of people, um, it just keeps me. I don't know. It keeps me in love with music. Um, if I spent a whole year off the road just writing a record, um, I don't know, I think I'd just I'd become a basket case. If I don't get out there every now and then and actually play music in front of people and remember why I love it and remember what is important about it, and then you know, the, I don't think writing would happen as easily. So now, with the band back home and the album starting to take shape, thoughts turn to who should produce album number three. A dream team list of producers is pulled together, but the band kept coming back to one name, one they'd first come across in Thailand, Trina Shoemaker. In Thailand, I, you know, I'd kind of sit around in the afternoon listening to records on headphones. Uh, and one of those records that I was listening to a lot at that time was uh, uh, The Globe Sessions by Cheryl Crow, her third record, which is just, you know, it's, it's an amazing, I, I love that record and the sound of it was just it's so beautifully recorded and and so my instinct is when I'm reading the credits on the album about who produced it I, I always kind of go right past who produced it and look at who engineered it and mixed it because that's why it sounds the way it does um, so you know that that record is you know produced by Cheryl Crow but uh, engineered by, by Trina Schumacher and so I was kind of and you know again as a band we've never really looked for producers in terms of like needing help with our songs. You know, some producers, they work with a band and they, they really get involved with the song structures and the arrangements and they change things around and they, we, and we've never wanted that from a producer. We, we've always just wanted someone who's going to come and capture the sound of the band, you know, in a really fantastic way. So again, that's why I kind of usually pay less attention to who, produced a record and more attention to who actually recorded it and made it sound the way it does. And Trina, you know, her work on that album, uh, I just think is amazing. And then I, you know, went on to discover that she also worked with uh, Queens of the Stone Age and Iggy Pop and REM and just an amazing list of people. So we were all in agreement pretty quickly that, that she was someone that we'd like to work with. Trina Shoemaker was a rising star in the engineering field over in the States, and Stephanie also remembers being excited by not just her growing resume, but mainly her abilities in the studio. She was very diverse. She'd worked with, you know, people like Pearl Jam, but she'd also worked with Queens of the Stone Age and, um, and R.E.M., and she'd worked under Daniel Lanois, and so she'd had this really kind of formal... Um, engineering training but then kind of um, on the Cheryl Crow records which we were listening to a lot at the time um, we could see that Cheryl had taken a leap of faith with with Trina um, and that Trina had basically engineered those records or that record by herself and the sounds were just so um, so separated and um, but cohesive and uh, and and full and beautiful. It, she it just had a real respect for all the instruments and how to blend them together, and that that just blew us away. And we we were, 
we were like, well, let's, you know, let's see if she's, um, if she's available um, because, uh, you know, I think she'd be right for where we're at. From Irma's perspective, John O'Donnell believed from the get-go that the choice to get Trina over to produce Echolalia was an inspired one. And I think changing producers for album number three, Echolalia, was an important next step. They'd done two records with Brian Paulson, great records, but they had to kind of take their sonic ambitions and song ambitions somewhere. And um, I think Trina Shoemaker was exactly the person to do that. Um, And again, you don't know that stuff until you get in a room and start making a record. But um, I think the band had built to, while they were wrestling with um, forces like um, writer's block, which they publicly were um, in the making of Echolalia, I knew, you know, you knew that they had greatness always and that, Trina was the person to take, I guess, those ambitions and polish them. Um, And I don't just mean polish them into commercial elements, but just polish them and make a great record. Trina has spoken in interviews in the past about receiving the first Sapnificate demos when she was approached to do Echolalia, calling them great but nuts. And she also recalls some animal-related intuition coming into play when making her decision whether to take the plunge. For the something for Kate, they were, they were great, but nuts. And, you know, because Paul's songs are so anthemic, but they're also uh, more like a symphony, you could say, with sections and parts. They're not always your straight verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. And so in that way, and the demos were a little rough, so I had to do some fathoming. But importantly, I don't remember how it came up, um, I had associated Paul with um, a giraffe. Now, I did not know that he was a tall man. I didn't. I, I couldn't have known this. I didn't know who something for Kate were. I don't sit around and think of what anim- people's animal, you know, others are. It just, maybe I had a picture of it. Whatever it was when I was listening to the demos, I, a giraffe came into my field of vision. It was kind of sweeping. It takes large steps. It's beautiful. It's quirky. Because giraffes are cute as hell. You know, they're odd creatures so i had had, you know connected him in my mind to a giraffe because i have a a childish or just very um uh, a visual uh, attachment in my mind to i make things up in there you know so paul became a giraffe and when i mentioned that in passing he he loved it and so we knew we were going to make a record right then there it wasn't just the giraffe thing though Trina admits knowing from those early demos that she wanted to be involved with this band. My, my career's never been such that, and it's been long and it has many, many high points and thousands of records, but you know, I was never in that um, lofty of a position where I could pick and choose from you know, the hundreds of wonderful, you know, I, I was grateful when I heard their demos, they were rough. But that didn't mean that, you know, I didn't recognize a solid band that had real songs and a real singer, um, lyrics that mattered. It's just that the recordings were really rough and the songs were, you know, they weren't tight and punchy like they ended up on the record because he was just strumming, you know, they were just in a rehearsal room, you know, playing them live. I was very grateful um, to have gotten 
uh, demos from a band of that caliber, in my opinion. Um, I was always busy in those years, but I was never turning down work for other work. It was usually like, oh, cool, another record's here. You know, I've got work. You know, I, I've always had to struggle to survive in this old business. And, crucially, a strong bond began forming between Trina and the members of Somethificate before the producer even boarded the plane for the long flight down under. When I first got down there, we did go into a rehearsal room in Melbourne. Um, and just just for like a day or two, and the rest of the pre-production was done via, you know, sending music and um, talking on the phone and, and kind of coming up with ideas. But it was also just, we established a certain amount of trust with each other. I mean, they knew that I knew how to make records. Um, I had made other records, so there was no question like, you know, what if she doesn't really do this for a living and we've been fooled? <laughs> Yeah, we built up trust even before I got there um, and became more almost friends um, in the you know month and a half or so that we were in communication before we before I actually came to Australia. And, you know, we always talked about the songs and the music, but we also started to talk about our lives and my interest in science and scientific. And Paul is, of course, utterly, you know, brilliant with that stuff. And so it almost felt like we became friends and then it seemed obvious we're going to go make a record. Um, and, you know, we, we didn't, there was never any um, question. There was questions about what were the songs going to become, but we weren't worried about it. We just knew we would get in there and we were all so hyper creative and into it that whatever was going to happen, it was going to be cool. All right, we'll leave episode two there with things about to get very cool indeed. Join us for episode three on the idyllic New South Wales Central Coast at a remote studio owned by one of the blokes from a band called In Excess, as after all the trials and tribulations, Echolalia finally starts to piece together. Then it's on to episode four, when things get a little odd. We'll say goodbye for now with the track that Stephanie discussed writing on her keyboard, 20 years, quite apt as we discussed Echolalia's 20th anniversary. In November 2001, it was released as the album's third single, peaking at number 43 on the Aria Singles chart.
Thanks for making it through episode two. I hope you check out the rest of the story. It gets pretty interesting. Thanks also to our network partners, Yamaha Headphones. I'll catch you all again soon. Rewind with Steve Bell is a podcast from the Handshake Agency Network. Produced by Craig Treweek and Andrew Marks. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker. Theme music by Dollar Bar.